Well, good morning. Um, Curtis Hoffman. I'm one of the elders here at Grace, and I have the pleasure of speaking to you guys this morning. Um, I'm always impressed when we have a, um, a difference in the musicianal talent. You guys did a great job this morning. Thank you for filling in while Dustin's out. Um, you guys, everybody, including the, the guys from here at Grace, you guys are really talented, so thank you for using those talents um, for us and for the, the glory of God. So Christopher and family are headed back from vacation this week, um, and they'll be back back here next week, so he'll be um, back up here on the pulpit. Um, it's always a little different when, um, when one of the elders gets up here and we kind of jump into the sermon series that Christopher is preaching, so you guys get a, a little bit of a different perspective just because it's, um, it's me. I'm more of a classically trained engineer than classically trained speaker, so... You get, you get what you get. <laughs> Last time when I spoke, um, I didn't feel like I wanted to jump into a jump into the sermon series. I think we were in Leviticus at the time, uh, but this time I wanted to to go um, and take that next step and kind of try and continue on the story that Christopher has been uh, painting these last months um, in Luke. Um, I really feel privileged to be speaking about this passage this week because it's one where we start to see a change in the way Jesus is talking and who he's talking to when he's in his ministry here at, or at uh, in Israel. So let's pray, um, and then we'll get we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for the opportunity to speak to Grace Community Church today. I pray that you'll work through me today as I speak about this passage in Luke. Please calm my nerves as I speak and bring clarity to my words where I haven't planned them well enough. Lord, we love you, and all this I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So identity is an important part of being human. It's one of the things that is unique to humans and makes us incredibly creative beings. Um, sorry, this is kind of low for me. <laughs> sorry, Christopher. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so we teach our kids, we teach our um, young ones that if they see somebody who's in a police uniform or in a police car, that that's a safe person to go talk to. Um, for me, my identity, you can notice things about me like I've got a ring on that makes me a husband to my wife, Ashley. Um, if you were watching, my daughter was up here this morning, that makes me a father. Um, I have a work, um, at, at work I'm a project engineer, that gives me a certain amount of authority, and all of those pieces of identity uh, speak to um, the authority that we have to do certain things. And they convey those portions to raise and lead a family or to direct engineers at work. All of these things are important in understanding who I am. It would take a while for you to gather up all these pieces of intel to understand more of me. Unfortunately, I don't think Jesus wore specific things to say that he was the Messiah, but what he did and the way he talked were definitely uh, clues into that perspective. Let's examine some of the scriptures that we've seen in Luke um, to talk about that identity. 
Last week, we covered the, the first 17 verses of chapter 9. The sermon was titled, Tag, You're It. Because the disciples were sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God. We aren't given any context into how long they were gone, but we can assume that they walked from village to village and spoke. This must have been a decent period of time. We know that Jesus had been preaching about the kingdom of God for some time, and we know that the disciples were with him while they were doing that. Observing and watching who Jesus was, they had to have some inkling all along, but each miracle and each prophecy affirmed their belief. So these guys went through Israel proclaiming the kingdom, the coming kingdom of God. I thought it was very interesting that Luke does not say that they were sent out to proclaim that the Messiah was here. Keep in mind that, keep that in mind as we look forward in today's passage. Luke's been leaving breadcrumbs about the identity of Christ throughout the whole book. I've got a couple examples to go over. In Luke 4, Jesus was in the synagogue in Nazareth. He had just finished reading from the um, book of Isaiah. And it says that he rolled up the scroll, handed it back. And then in verse 21 of Luke 4, he says, Then he began to tell them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled, even as you heard it being read. All were speaking well of him and were amazed at the gracious words coming out of his mouth. They said, isn't this Joseph's son? So in that passage, they were questioning Jesus' identity because they thought they knew who Jesus was. They'd seen him grow up in the, in the church and in the synagogue and in the community. And so they were very confused, They're thinking, well, isn't that a carpenter's son? Like, what, what's up? In verse 36 of chapter 4, we see another instance of people wondering about the power and authority of the man that they knew. Jesus had just finished healing a demon-possessed man. Verse 36 reads, They were all amazed and began to say to one another, What's happening here? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. In this instance, the people witnessed a great power and couldn't believe what they were seeing. They knew that this man must have great authority to command the unclean spirits, but they did not comprehend or understand his true identity as of yet. In chapter 5, Jesus proclaims, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Then the experts in the law and the Pharisees began to think to themselves, who is this man who is uttering blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Again, the religious leaders thought that they knew the only current way to forgive sins, but they didn't see the man of Jesus as an incarnation of the living God. So what he would have been saying in that sense was blasphemous. It's really, it's kind of funny to me though, because in that statement, they say what he has to be if he is forgiving sins, but they do not give him that credit. It's almost like something that you kind of understand in your head, but you don't understand in your heart. At the end of chapter 7, 
another instance. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Last week, Herod pondered who Jesus was as well. Um, I suspect that that was for different motives than the regular Israelites and the people in um, the areas where Jesus was teaching. Herod was the um, governor of the region, and so he would have had a, um, a job-level interest in why he was not wanting a Messiah to come, a savior, you know, somebody who would take over and disrupt his authority. Okay, so those are a few examples of where people are asking, who is Jesus? What is it, who is this man, and what is his authority to say and do the things that he is doing? As we talk about identity, Jesus has forgiven sins, raised people from the dead, cured uncleanness from people, and driven out demons, just to name a few. He was raised by earthly parents. His father was a carpenter. The first two chapters of Luke cover his birth time period and the Passover event. The rest of the book of Luke, his ministry, which would have generated significant word of mouth as the stories were carried from town to town. I'm going to read the first two verses again this morning. Maybe if I'm in the right spot. Once, when Jesus was praying by himself and his disciples were nearby, he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? They answered, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has risen. In this passage, we see the disciples getting asked a question um, to try and gather some information. So as they were out um, and about, they are being talked to by all the people that they are inter intermixing with and talking to. And Jesus, while he understands the answer, he's trying to get the disciples to continue that thought process. It's something that um, I use a lot with my kids, like, hey, should you be jumping on the side of the sofa? <laughs> no, and they know that. Uh, but, you know, sometimes uh, it's, it's helpful to reinforce that. I think it's a great way to make somebody think about what they're doing um, and then know what they might need to do differently or affirm what they are doing. Here Jesus is using it to help his disciples understand the people that they're talking to and the crowds that have gathered the pieces of his exposed true identity. I believe he is using this time as an opportunity to gauge what the disciples know or understand about who he is. In the following three verses, it reads, Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. But he forcefully commanded them not to tell this to anyone, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and experts in the law, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. 
in this passage, Jesus flips the question from an outward question, who do they think I am, to who do you guys think that I am? It's one of the plural use of scripture, so the y'alls, where he's saying, well, who do y'all think that I am? Peter's answer is indicative that he understands that the opinion of the masses is incorrect. It's almost as if he's saying, they are wrong. You are the Messiah. The one who's prophesied about in the Old Testament. I feel like there would have been a lot of excitement with this response. Um, you know, a lot of scholars believe that from before the time period of Christ, it had been about 400 years of silence from the last prophet. The coming of the Messiah would have marked a change in um, God's word to each and in each Israelite that was there. As he came to fulfill that, that prophecy, the Israelites' dreams might not have been met, but the, but the prophecy was. So I think that the disciples, as they gained that understanding, would have been really excited about what it was, almost bursting at the seams. I think the other, another thing that's interesting to me is that in Luke, in this particular passage, Jesus is using other people, or Luke is using other people to say who Jesus is. Um, in the Gospel of John, you have a lot of the iconic I am statements. So Jesus would have been saying, I am this. But in this sense, Luke is using those other people to uh, show who um, Jesus is. While all of these accounts would have happened simultaneously, I just, I do love those different perspectives. I think they each give us something unique to glean. Jesus knows that the completed fulfillment of the messianic title would not have been completely finished until the crucifixion. The next two verses give us a foretelling of his death. For me, the words forcefully commanded really jump out to me here. Again, I'm going to use my kids as an example, but when they're running across Rodeo Drive, I kind of get onto them pretty harshly because there's, church, there's this other church over here and people leave in the parking lot. Now, do I think that this street is dangerous? Not really, but I'm trying to enforce the perspective of when you go across the street, you need to be paying attention to both sides. Well, I'm not sure of the tone in an adult-to-adult forcefully commanding situation. Maybe some of the military guys do, actually. I do like that Luke adds those words to convey weight to what Jesus is about to say. The Messiah must suffer, be rejected, be killed, and rise again. Just like the passage from Isaiah that JJ read this morning, something that's easy for us to do when we have the totality of the scripture story is to know or be harsh to the people who were hearing it firsthand. I think that's a, a, a dangerous spot to take because you can be um, a little bit harsh for people who had a high expectation of the Messiah being a political savior, one who would come in and conquer and kind of relieve them from that Roman oppression. 
I believe that the first century Jews would have needed to be reminded of what was spoken about in Isaiah, but then also to know that their perspective or, or idea had changed. At this point, I feel like the disciples would have been really confused. So they had been sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God. They know that Jesus is the Messiah, at least when they return, and ideally from beforehand as well. But now they're being told to be quiet about it. So I just, it's a very, um, like, wait, wait, wait. We have the best news in the world, and we're not supposed to tell anybody? I think that now that Jesus knows that the disciples understand who he is, he is going to try and work to help them understand what that actually means throughout the rest of Luke. And he starts in the passage today. This represents a turning point in where Luke um, is painting the picture for us. So before it was more related to the masses, and now Jesus' ministry has some more focus on what the disciples. There will be other stories where the masses are involved, but um, I think he's really trying to prepare the disciples for what's to come in his life and in theirs. Part of the education that the disciples need to understand is what it means to be a follower of Christ. At this point, they've been physically following him for several years, but have not fully taken on pieces or proclamation of the ministry. Last week we saw in the feeding of the 5,000 where Jesus said, well, feed them. And they said, well, but we only have a little bit of food. And he just was like, okay, this is how you, this is how you go about it. So now that they understand the identity of Christ, they must understand the process and the ramifications of doing just that. Let's read verses 23 to 27. Then he said to them all, if anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will save it. For what does it benefit a person if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you most certainly, there are some standing here who will not experience death before they see the kingdom of God. There are, there are a lot of nuggets in this passage. Um, I'm going to hit, I'm going to touch on a few. So contextually, I think it's important to remember the time period that the disciples were living in. The Romans were the ruling authority. They punished the, most, they punished the most heinous criminals with death on a cross. Bearing a cross was a symbol of submission to the Romans, and it was also a very humility-inducing activity for the accused. The disciples would have heard the word cross and understood what it meant for, the, for their world, but they one thing they would not have understood yet is that Jesus was about to follow that same path. Got wasps in the building. Plus, 
The other thing is when you carried a cross, it was likely the last time you were to carry anything. So mainly because you were headed to your, you were marching to your death. So the dilemma that the disciples would have had to, to deal with when they heard the word cross was, well, wait a minute, if I carry a cross, how do I carry it more than once? How do I do it daily? And if I'm carrying a cross, aren't I about to die? Like something doesn't add up here. One commentary that I read noted that to take up the cross daily is to live each day, not for self, but for Christ. I thought that that was a great quote and synopsis of this portion of the text. I also want to key in on the part where he says, follow me at the end of verse 23. Follow me implies that you're going on a journey and you're not alone. You are walking after the one who we follow, follow. Obviously here again, there's some foretelling of what is to come. The disciples would have continued to follow Christ physically for, until the day, days before his death. At Pentecost, we were given the Holy Spirit to be with us daily. This gives us the added strength in knowing that our walk is not a lonesome one. We are not alone because of the community of believers that are sitting right beside you, the covenant members that are in this church walking with you guys day in and day out with me. I like how verse 23 is very uh, mathematical. Deny plus daily cross plus follow equals disciple. The next two verses seem to paint a very paradoxical picture. I know that when I read them, my brain kind of goes, okay, this, then this, but not that, and then this. And it's very, uh, it's very mind-bendy, but as we... As we look at it, Jesus had just finished telling the disciples that he would be rejected, that he would suffer, be killed, and rise again. Obviously, Jesus knew that there were things that each of his followers would also be subjected to, and so he wanted to make sure that they understood what was coming. Verse 24 and 25 talk about losing your life and gaining the world. Those are pretty uh, absolute statements. Your life and the whole world are incomparable to what you gain when you follow Christ. Both of these verses convey a weight and a worth towards following Jesus. He is telling his disciples that they could gain the entire world. You could own everything, but if you didn't find Jesus, you would have lost. He is telling us the same things. Jesus implores them to be bold with their declaration of him, even though it means they will suffer. So we've looked at a little bit at the historical context of the cross and what that would have meant for each disciple in Roman times. Then we've explored some of the paradox of living the Christian life. We are in a time after the coming of the Holy Spirit, have that same God living with us every day. We also have the Bible to study, all the words of Jesus in this book.
so today's big idea was, or is, understanding Jesus's identity is a key component of being a disciple of Christ. As we seek to find life, our eyes need to be fixed on Christ as the Messiah, the Savior. We need to continually seek his identity as we go about our daily lives. It's revealed throughout the scriptures. The gospels talk specifically about his earthly ministry, but are only a part of the entire book. Throughout the Bible, there are examples of the character of Christ and of God that we can and should aim to emulate. I love that great or that uh, that JJ talked about the mission statement of grace. That was unscripted, but you know, at Grace, we desire to know God, to grow together in faith, and proclaim Christ. These components of our mission statement talk directly towards seeking Christ's identity as he implored in the disciples during this exchange in Luke 9. I hope these words will be an encouragement to you as we look to find the pieces of Christ's identity, know that you're doing it with the community of believers that's around you.